I'm Stephen McInerney, Academic Director and Deputy CEO at the Ramsey Centre for Western Civilisation. Welcome to uh, this ongoing series of Great Books Discussions. Uh, today we're beginning the first of a three-part series on Aeschylus's Oresteia. To discuss this trilogy and the first part today, Agamemnon, I'm joined by Dr Laurel Moffat and Dr Kishore Saval. Dr Laurel Moffat is an independent scholar and researcher who lives and works in Sydney. Uh, Dr Kishore Saval is Senior Lecturer at Australian Catholic University. Welcome to you both. Thanks. Laurel, um, what did you make of this play, Agamemnon, when you first read it? Um, well, I think first I was surprised that I hadn't read it before, or if I had, it's been so long ago. And the, another thing I was um, struck by is um, links you can make so easily to Shakespeare. So obviously Shakespeare would, would have known this play, I think. Um, at, but also it, it felt current, that the um, kind of bloodthirstiness for revenge, or I guess underneath that um, crying for justice, I think that's something that has never left us as humans. So when I was reading Agamemnon, I was thinking, goodness gracious, this could be now, now. in some ways. I mean, in many other ways, not now, but um, this is ancient Greece. But <laughs> I did think there's this thread of the desire for justice that is so innate in a human um, that yeah. Aeschylus draws out. Yeah, and let's focus then on that idea of justice. <clears throat> I mean, uh, according to Clytemnestra, the wife of Agamemnon, there's this incredible injustice that's, that has taken place um, some years back, about 10 years ago, if I'm not incorrect, at the beginning of the Trojan War when the um, Greek forces led by Agamemnon and his brother Menelaus um, set sail or start to set sail and they need favourable winds. And to get those favourable winds, uh, Agamemnon basically, uh, to ensure that, sacrifices his own daughter, um, which obviously is a devastating occurrence for Clytemnestra, um, the, the mother and wife who's at home in Argos. Uh, so she, at the very beginning of this, this terrible calamity, loses her daughter who has been essentially killed, murdered by um, her husband Agamemnon, by the child Epigenea's father. Agamemnon. Uh, and so in the background, before Agamemnon arrives home from the Trojan War, having been successful and victorious as the, the leader of the Greek forces, um, before he arrives home, at home, uh, there is sort of dissent and uh, Clytemnestra has, has taken up with a lover who has his own reasons for, for hating uh, Agamemnon. Um, uh, and yet, there is something terrible about what happens to Agamemnon when he gets home. Um, he's murdered. Uh, and so the, then that leads to another <laughs> sense of an injustice which needs to be redressed through the, through the course of the trilogy. So why does Aeschylus, and I'll just ask this to you both, why does Aeschylus um, focus so much on this idea of justice or the problem of justice? Kishore. Well, this issue of sacrifice and murder, I think, is something uh, very important here. Um, so we have to ask ourselves, what is a sacrifice? So uh, the sense of the sacred 
depends upon sacrifice. That's what sacrifice means to make sacred. So what, what differentiates a sacrifice from some other kind of violence? From a murder, as I call it. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. We yeah. might say a sacrifice is sacred violence, mm. whereas uh, other kinds of violence are profane violence. Now, I think that we, what we begin to notice throughout this tragedy is that the distinction between sacred violence and profane violence cannot be maintained mm. for some reason or another. Um, so uh, a, a, a sacrifice is meant to purify, but um, you, when you begin with a, 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 a sacrifice that is so obviously immoral, uh, uh, the, the, a, a human sacrifice, um, when you begin in a world where sacrifice cannot be distinguished from murder, when sacred and profane violence cannot be distinguished, that's, that's part of the movement, uh, I think, of this tragedy that's very important. You end up moving from, you, you have to move from uh, uh, an inadequate idea of the sacred to some higher idea of the relationship between divine order and justice. Yes, and... Well, I guess, too, then that means as uh, justice is constructed, it's, or it's the gods were concerned, that kind of violent love or the um, sacred violence kind of idea, um, it's never satisfied, is it? It just has to keep going and going, like, in order to appease um, the injustice or the violence, you have to then commit more violence in order to kind of make the slate clean, but yet that then means there's another <laughs> error that has to be addressed by another act of violence. Like, it's just endless, isn't it? Yes, I think that's right, because sacrifice is meant to stop that cycle of violence. Mm -hmm. Sacrifice is meant to displace that instinct for violence or to purify it in some way. Um, and so when that doesn't happen, then you have this cycle of violence. And then you realize that, so you need some higher connection between the sacred order and justice that will, uh, that will stop this cycle of violence. And I think that's one reason why we begin so early on uh, with uh, this, this vision of a, of a, 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 a the, the chorus uh, recalls this vision of a, a strange killing that is somewhere between uh, a sacrifice and a hunt and, 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 and a murder that, that two eagles uh, devour uh, a young hare uh, along with her uh, pregnant uh, 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 children. Um, and this is, uh, and the language that is used um, is a language that uh, confuses the language of sacrifice which the, with the language of hunting, uh, among other things. Yeah, and also it's like, it's a, a picture of something that's supposedly natural, but yet at, in the murder, it's unnatural as well. It's like both at the same time, isn't yes. it? Like he's us they're using animals to describe it. So you think, oh, that's just the natural world. But yet these are humans, so they shouldn't behave in the same way. Yes, you know? that's, that's right, that's right. And so and, and it, it, it recalls uh, human errors. I mean, so so uh, uh, Agamemnon has killed a deer in a, in a grove that is uh, sacred to Diana has hunted uh, a deer that he shouldn't, and now um, 
he must, uh, he must uh, appease uh, uh, Artemis uh, uh, for, um, for, for, this, for this, this violation. Um, and at the same time, this recalls for us just the nature of the, the Trojan War itself, that in order to uh, achieve this victory, the, the young will have to be sacrificed. And so all of this is sort of mingled together. And I, I, yeah. it's, 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 I think it's also interesting because in sacrifice, one of the key things about sacrifice is that sacrifice should normally be of a, of a domesticated animal, or the ox of a <clears> plow or something like this. Uh, so it's the opposite <clears throat> of an animal that you hunt. Uh, and it's sort of meant to sort of bring these two sides of humanity together, the Neolithic side and the side that hunts. And so this is all confused in the same way as you say that it's the, 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 the human language suggests to us that the, that the sacrifice involved is not just an animal sacrifice. Yeah, not, and therefore not appropriate <laughs> for a dad, you know. And Clytemnestra also, I mean, she makes mention of the fact that he has ample animals to use. Like, why didn't he use, a, 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 you know, a, a sheep or a flock, you know, that... Because it wouldn't get the job done. Yeah. <clears throat> I think that's the idea, isn't it? Somehow, it, it, precisely in order to be efficacious, to be effective, he, he, has to do, he has to do this terrible thing to his own child to secure the passage. Um, and so... But isn't that the question whether or not he actually needed to do that? Like, yeah. was it necessary? Yeah. And I guess that's the question I had in reading it is that, um, was this just excessive? Yeah. You know, as in... Was that really necessary? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in, the, in the language he says, you know, he says that this is an impossible mm. short, uh, decision. He, yeah. he, must, he must decide uh, between these impossible complete competing alternatives. Uh, he decides uh, he, he decides on to sacrifice, to, to murder his own daughter. Mm. And then it says uh, in our Fagel's translation, and once he slipped his neck in the strap of fate, his spirit veering black in pure unholy, uh, unholy. Once he turned, he stopped at nothing, seized with the frenzy, blinding, driving to outrage. Mm. I think, yeah. I think it, it, this says, <clears throat> at once he slipped his neck in the strap of fate. I mm. think literally it's something like, when he put on his neck yeah. the yoke of necessity, which raises this question that you're asking. So if what he put on his neck was the yoke of necessity, well, then it was necessary rather than something he could have uh, chosen. But he put on his neck the yoke of necessity. Therefore, uh, he, he didn't have. He could didn't. He have chooses to, do it. to be bound. Yes, and yeah. so yeah. So which one is it? Yeah. Um, and it doesn't sound reasonable in that it doesn't sound like an act of reason because he's there's wretched frenzy. Um, yeah. He's you know seized with frenzy. It's it blinds him. And then uh, at the end of that little section where his instructions to his henchmen, uh, you know, gag her hard. Mm. Like that is so inhuman, yeah. isn't it? I mean, that's like, it's an act, and a, it's a war atrocity right yeah. there committed against his daughter. Yeah. Which, it's, you know, it sounds like he's just like taken by this. Passion. Passion, yeah. Yes, yeah. yes, I think that's, that's a key thing. I mean, to say that he starts by saying, okay, this is an impossible choice. 
then he decides to do it, and then he has a line which is something like, therefore, passionately to desire it yeah. is good. And I think that this is, this is something that uh, I think a lot of readers have gone back and forth with. So some people say, that's the issue. It's, it's not that he did it, but that he, that, that he did it passionately. Mm. But I don't know. I mean, you know, is the, is, is the Oresteia the Bhagavad Gita? In other words, does it have the same, does it have the idea that if you kill dispassionately, you will be... That it's okay. That it's okay? <laughs> or, or, I mean, so it yeah. is really, is the issue that, that he did it passionately? Or is it, or, or, or is that missing the point? Mm. I, I mean, I don't But that's yeah. the question, isn't it, of the whole trilogy, the, the question of murder. Yeah. And is there such a thing as a justifiable yeah. murder? Yes. Um, yes. How do you determine that? You know, what, for what reasons did did someone murder another person? And his reasons are to have a successful campaign mm -hmm. against Troy, and he thinks he needs that for the win. Later, we'll see other reasons why Orestes will murder his mother. But you know, that's the question, isn't it? And like the one that you raised. And is Clytemnestra, I mean, she feels oh, yes. justified That's right. in murdering her husband. Um, she doesn't seem to have the same divine sanction as her son Orestes purports to have in the next part of the trilogy. But nonetheless, she feels justified as a wife and as a mother, more particularly as a mother, um, that, that she's been betrayed uh, in, in the most extraordinary way. Um, that the fruit of their union has been, you know, sacrificed in this way, this child that she loves. Um, so she doesn't uh, necessarily, I mean, she believes that this, that the murder of her daughter ought to be avenged. Um, but it doesn't seem that she has the same capacity to call upon some divine justice to sanction it. But nonetheless, she feels innately that it is just, that it is necessary. Agamemnon to be murdered. And she, she feels this and she actually offers a variety of alibis. Yeah. So, so that, you know, on the one hand, um, uh, she, I mean, there, 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 there will turn out to be a divine sanction on her side later in the yes. form of the Eumenides, the Furies. Yes. But um, when she gives her reasons, she also gives us, this brings us back to this problem of necessity. She mm. says, <clears throat> among other things, don't blame me. Yeah. Blame the curse that has fallen on the house of Atreus. Yeah. And uh, this is something that, that, that keeps coming back. So what do we mean by this curse upon the house of Atreus? Yes. This, is a, this is a story that uh, 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 goes uh, all the way back um, to the myth of uh, Tantalus and Pelops, although Aeschylus doesn't take it that far. Um, we, uh, now isn't the occasion to go into the entire story, but the idea is that um, Tantalus uh, at one point was feasting with the gods, and he, for reasons that are not entirely explained, feeds his son uh, Pelops to the gods in the form of a meal. The gods are horrified. Pelops is restored, uh, but a curse falls upon Tantalus's house, uh, and this is repeated in uh, Pelops, who makes a, a, a series of bad uh, choices, he he chooses to to a criminal 
he, he bribes a charioteer, uh, driving a, a, a chariot for, win, for whom he must win the favor of a hippodamia, um, and betrays that charioteer. And so uh, as a result, that curse is then passed on to his, um, uh, his uh, uh, children, Atrus and Thyestes. And Atrus, uh, uh, Thyestes sleeps with uh, uh, Atrus's uh, wife, and Atrus uh, uh, gets revenge by killing Thyestes's children and serving them to him in a meal. And some of the things that we see here is, again, this relationship, the, the idea of serving in a meal. The, the, the sacrificial meal is, again, profaned by this kind of murder. But there is also something else that keeps uh, happening, which is that we're confronted by this problem. So if there is a curse upon our family and upon our house, then uh, did we make, did we commit this act of evil as a result of a curse and a necessity that we couldn't help? Or did we commit it out of our own free choice? I mean, how is it that you're able to, uh, at times, offer both? That you're able to talk about your own choices and to, to offer an alibi in the form of a necessity uh, that, yeah. that precedes you. Well, yeah. I think you make a really good point, though, about the, the hugeness of the story. There's this enormous backstory yes. um, that Aeschylus doesn't go into. We kind of start this story in the middle of things, but you know, things have already ha transpired, not just the Trojan War, but this whole history of a family curse. And we only see part. It seems like we, Aeschylus keeps only showing us kind of like half of a story. Or, yeah. you know, we, we get Clytemnestra's reasoning for why um, she would murder her husband, you know, the spirit of revenge that is living in her in this family curse. But we don't have the fullness of the picture because we don't have, are there other reasons why? Did she get permission from the gods? Was she prompted? We don't even have that, which makes you wonder, why is he showing us only a portion of things? Um, yeah, and we're not really given, I mean, the motive, part of the motivation for Clytemnestra's lover to be involved in the murder of Agamemnon is that he is the cousin of Agamemnon. He's the son of Thaistes. Yes. Uh, and therefore, he feels that this atrocity has been committed by Agamemnon's father, Atreus, against his father. Uh, so Aegisthus has this motivation, which you know, Aeschylus doesn't really explore, but the audience presumably knew about it, but that he takes up with Clytemnestra, but with his own motivations for getting back yes. at Agamemnon. And, um, yes. and yet there, there, is a, there is another sense in which uh, Clytemnestra, you know, we're talking about a backstory, but at the same time there's a parallel story. She's being compared unfavourably to the faithful wife of Odysseus, Penelope, yes. who's faithfully waiting back in Ithaca, who's not taking up with a lover the way Clytemnestra has taken up with Aegisthus, uh, and who, far from murdering her husband, uh, Odysseus, when he returns home, actually um, supports him and, and fends off, delays the, the suitors who were seeking her hand. So, Clytemnestra, already in the minds of the audience and, and ours when we pick up this, this work, is somehow a figure whose um, morals we question, uh, who is already implicitly 
someone we're, I think, suspicious of, perhaps unfairly, but, but she is being juxtaposed, um, uh, you know, with, with um, Penelope, the good wife versus the, the bad wife, the faithful wife, wife versus the unfaithful wife. And um, so as much as we seek to find motivation to, to find justification for Clytemestra's behaviour and for Aegisus's behaviour, somehow they enter the story already um, in a shadow. Yes, and well, I think this goes to another thing that I think distinguishes tragedy from epic. Yes. As, as, you're, as you're talking about, you know, the difference between Clytemestra and, yes. and Penelope. This, this idea that, 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 uh, that Aegisus through uh, by being uh, through Thyestes has another motivation mm. it is a it's it's a it's a change in the status of the family yes. that, that we see uh, a, 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 that really marks the difference between um, the world of epic and the mm. and this tragic world which is one way that it's been described E.R. Dodds talks about the move from a culture of shame to a culture of guilt another way that you could talk about this is the idea that uh, the world of Homer is an aristocratic world, and mm. what I mean is that it's a world of landowning elites for whom the, um, the, the family story is a source of pride. So if you say Peleus' son, Achilles, that when you speak about your father and their father and their father, you speak of your family story as a source of your own, hero a, part of, a part of the source of your own heroic strength. Whereas now the family story is not a source of aristocratic pride, it is the source of a new kind of guilt. The family, what you inherit is no longer something that you are proud of in the way of Homer, but something that now makes you guilty. In sort of in, in Nietzsche's terms, it's a move from the world of good and bad, which is sort of the aristocratic world, to a world of yeah. good and evil. But also the, the fact that we don't see the battlefield, but we know about the battlefield in Troy, and that you know, good versus evil is supposedly played out on that battlefield. But then to bring it right inside the home or the house, not only like the line, you know, the generations that are there, but also like the physical space of a home where you think of the hearth, um, you know, that you keep the the home fires burning kind of thing. Well, she's kept home fires burning, but a very different sort, you know, yeah. revenge. She's been busy weaving, but that's a net that she's going to ensnare her husband right. in and then murder him in the bath. Um, I, it gives you the sense that it's, you know, it, justice is playing out not just on the big, in the big scale on the battlefield, but it's right inside a home. It's inside a bathtub. It's, you know, like it's so intimate, it's so personal. And yet, it, I would think it would make everyone think, like, "Oh my goodness, what is my home like? What is my, what is my family like?" In that sense, it feels very current. I think, doesn't it? Yeah, and in that sense, I, I, I'm reminded in exactly that relationship of the fact that I, I, I just was looking at the speech that um, Robert Kennedy delivers uh, on the night that Martin Luther King died, died, was assassinated to. Uh, an audience in Chicago, he has to deliver that news. And when he delivers that news, he then says, and my favorite poet uh, is Aeschylus. Mm. And Aeschylus said, and he quotes lines from the Agamemnon, uh, lines about learning through suffering. Um, but there's another story behind that, which is how did uh, Robert Kennedy come to read Aeschylus? 
he was reading one of Edith Hamilton's books on the Greeks mm. uh, and reading about the house of Atreus. And he said to himself, that's it. My family is cursed in the same way that that house of Atreus is cursed. And it's, it's just this strange way in which, on the one hand, the public side, speaking about the death of Martin Luther King, speaking about learning through suffering, speaking to this group in Chicago, he's a politician. And on the other hand, the private side, the sense that this speaks to him in his home, in the sense of his own family being cursed. And I think that that, that yeah. bringing together is the way that both of those sides can appeal to one and the same person yeah. uh, today. And, yeah. and the move from the public to the private is very powerfully conveyed in this play by the, you know, the, the rolling out of the, the red carpet, as it were, for Agamemnon yeah. to step across into the home. Yes. You know, and yes. the movement into the home, which is full of trepidation. You know, he does, he, something's holding him back. Um, he has with him Cassandra, of course, who is saying, don't do it. You know, so it, this, this moment, this stepping into the, into the home, uh, you know, suddenly Agamemnon, the ruler of the Argives, the great leader of the Greeks in the Trojan War, uh, who survives the Trojan War, you know, and is victorious, is then suddenly a victim, is going to become a victim in the home, the place mm. where he assumes he will be safe. Yeah, that moment of the tapestries, or the, the laying out of these tapestries, yes. and Agamemnon, and, uh, Clytemnestra invite, asks him, invites him to walk mm. on them, and he resists. It's a purple, isn't it? Not red, or is it? Yeah. Yeah. Or, the, or yeah. crimson. I'm not crimson. sure. Crimson. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And a purpley red. Purpley red. <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, he 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 uh, he's invited to walk on the tapestry. So he doesn't want to do it yeah. because he thinks that this is an extravagant. A waste of something that should be used to honor the gods and not to honor a human being. Um, and the thing that he's worried about is a thing that uh, you see uh, uh, mentioned in Herodotus as well, phthonos, the yes. fear of the, the divine envy of yes. the gods. It's the thing that comes up in the conversation between uh, uh, Croesus and Solon in, in, in Herodotus, the idea that, uh, the God, that, that it, too great a, a success or hubris will bring on divine envy. And, and that's so what fills him with dread, isn't yeah. it, like when he's doing it. But is this Clytemnestra entrapping him? Like as in that would give her cause, like, ah, I should murder you because you've done something only the gods should do. You've done the wrong thing. Yeah. Well, that, that's <laughs> the thing. I mean, he, 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 he recognizes there's a problem. He, he he's, he's, he, he gives in through Clytemnestra's persuasion. Mm. And so is he guilty or is he not? And there seem mm. to be a couple of things. On the one hand, the movement of the, of the Oresteia itself is a movement of people trying to solve problems through violence in the end to adjudicating by persuasion, peitho. That becomes the, 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 that, that becomes the word that that describes the new order to which we're moving. 
But here we see the other way in which persuasion works. And of course, persuasion in Sappho uh, and in other things, the, the word can uh, be used to describe persuasion or seduction. It's the reason why we might wonder why is a work like Plato's Phaedrus both about eros and about rhetoric, because persuasion and seduction are very linked. Yes. But here, so there is persuasion as a, as a way of ordering um, of, of, of ordering a civilization, yeah. and here is the, this. This is something else. This is the negative side of persuasion. Mm. And I think, um, and we have to finish in, in a moment. Um, but I, I think the other thing that's going on here, and, and you alluded to it earlier, or you mentioned it earlier, the, the shift from epic to to tragedy. It's as if Agamemnon is conscious of wanting to resist the movement uh, of himself from an epic hero to a tragic hero. You know, that's precisely because by elevating himself to a status that will cause the gods to envy, he's setting himself up, he, he's full of hubris, and he'll be, you know, therefore he's open to the fall, to the tragic fall. That's right, because the, these, these, uh, these tapestries and, mm. and, and materials like this are no longer there to, um, they no longer uh, can be a, uh, there to illustrate the pride, the, 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 the heroic, the sense of, of heroic greatness. Instead, they, they are filled with this sense, instead of this, uh, of this, of, of this consciousness of guilt. So, yeah. that, so that move from shame to guilt seems yeah. to be, uh, seems to be a, a, a key element. And I, I think that also you mentioned Cassandra, and I think it makes us, we, yeah. we wouldn't want to... Um, uh, uh, yes, we've glossed over Cassandra. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. Cassandra, who um, uh, by uh, resisting, partly resisting the entreaties of Apollo, is, is now uh, ha is given a blessing that is also a curse. She can foretell the future, but nobody will believe her. Mm. But there's also something about the, the dramatic art of Aeschylus that's working here. You've talked about the way that... Um, the, the degree to which Clytemnestra is so much at the center of our of our interest and fascination in, in this work, and I, I think that this has partly to do with uh, the, the role of the third actor, the movement from two actors to three actors of playing all of the parts uh, in in the tragedy. Um, uh, Aeschylus is said to have introduced the second actor. The third actor, I think, according to Aristotle, was introduced by Sophocles. Nevertheless. Aeschylus makes use of the three actors in, in two ways. One is that by bringing a third actor, you can focus more upon the relationship between two protagonists. In an earlier work like The Seven Against Thebes, you have um, the, the conflict between Eteocles and Polynices, two brothers, but the work focuses entirely on the perspective of one of them, Eteocles, and Polynices is not a part of the of the of the of the tragic drama because the tragic drama is focused upon the fate and destiny of one protagonist. Whereas now three actors can get you to focus upon both Agamemnon and Clytemnestra, and Clytemnestra is no longer just a means for thinking about Agamemnon. Clytemnestra becomes a figure that we think about in her own right. But another way that the third actor works. I think is exploited very well here, which is that uh, Clytemnestra is addressing Cassandra 
and uh, saying things to her like, well, why don't you talk? Why don't you talk? And uh, uh, Cassandra doesn't speak. Um, and I think, you know, even though a third actor was introduced earlier, the audience, uh, by Sophocles, the audience possibly would have been unsure as to the status of Cassandra, uh, the actor playing Cassandra, so probably would have assumed that Cassandra is not a speaking part. And so this seems sort of a way uh, Cassandra's addressing, uh, Clytemnestra addressing Cassandra and Cassandra not responding seems simply to a way to exploit the fact that the actor can't respond. So we expect Cassandra, Cassandra not to talk. But then uh, Clytemnestra walks into the house and Cassandra explodes with uh, this wailing, which I can't remember it exactly, but I think in the Greek it's something like, oh, momoi, popoi, da, and this, this oh, moi is really meant to sort of be, is just the sort of trans, is, is just meant to signify a kind of wailing. Uh, and so it must have actually been chilling at that moment to have this figure who we didn't, think was a speaking part, explode with this, 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 this terrifying, this wailing, followed by then this terrifying prophecy of what's going to befall the house. Let's leave it there with Cassandra wailing and terrifying us and the audience, and we'll continue the conversation uh, next time um, with a focus on the second part of the trilogy, uh, The Libation Bearers. Thanks, Bo. Thank you.